Thank you, Mr. Douglas. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome back to the rundown and chewing on of Ingo Swan's Secrets of Power, Volume 1. Today, Chapter 12 and 13. And this begins Part 3 of Volume 1, The Situation of Personal Power. We're moving into it. I'm going to include some pictures, or at least one picture. And there are some really cool images that he brings up that I would love somebody far more artistically inclined than I to uh, perhaps consider taking on, having to do with maps of empowerment and depowerment. And you know, they'd be useful. They'd be like that book, like that encyclopedia, that DK Encyclopedia of Human Powers. They make some good posters. All right. Wonderful that you are all here. Let us continue our empowerment journey together. For each and every one of us individually. So that collectively, we step off the track that has been laid before us and walk our own path. Yes! Chapter 12 time. The ongoing dichotomy of individual and societal power. Ingo begins by... Talking about people who, you know, have some kind of sensitivity, clairvoyance, clairsentience. You know, you listen to the tingles on the back of your neck. And most everybody does, to one extent or another. We're a lot more in tune with ourselves than we think we are, at least consciously. Anyway, he says that most people that are in touch in any kind of way with some of their subtle powers like that can pick up that most people are more powerful than they are uh, actively expressing. Ingo continues to say, There are probably numerous reasons why most individuals don't manifest or actively demonstrate their powers, even though it's clear that we can see that there's a lot more capacity. Whatever the reason, and collectively speaking, Ingo says, their empowerment switches have been somehow turned off, or perhaps not turned on in the first place. Most individuals somewhat sense this in themselves. We feel that we could be a lot more... And even if they can rationalize it away intellectually, there's always a residuum of frustration and internal after-effects that influence behavior and sense of self. Now, if you actually get up and ask people, most people will be able to say, yeah, actually, it does kind of feel like the system is not set up uh, for our immediate and widespread benefit. Most people get it. Most people grok it. Ingo says most people will finger society as the culprit. That has somehow turned off not their power switches, but those of the entire zero people populations as well. I mean, the population pretty much as a whole. Now this, basically, as Ingo referenced in chapter 6 and 7, is due in part to a lack of an A to Z encyclopedia that identifies and discusses all known and suspected human powers and abilities. There's no breakdown. There's no, like, yeah, we start with this and we can actually graduate to all, you know, levitation. There is no organized source, Ingo says, anyone can consult to find out about human powers in general. This also assures the ongoing societal presence of ignorance and illiteracy regarding power, empowerment, and depowerment. The absence is therefore the important centerpiece of the power-knowledge vacuum. The Societal Diminishment of the Importance of Personal Power There are two principal situations regarding power that can be recognized, Ingo says. First has to do with the indwelling powers of the individual. The second has to do with power within the larger societal panoramas. Pretty much almost all the time, societal contexts are seen as bigger, better, more compelling, 
more effective and effectual, and thus more powerful than the majority of the individuals encapsulated within them. However, Engo says, the chief concern within the top power levels of societal panoramas is focused on how power is to be distributed via a graded or class-like format. We've touched upon this, the power pyramid example. How are we going to divvy up the power so we got the most of it and they got the crumbs? Ingo says, it stands to reason and logic that if power is to be collected in the hands of the few, then it can neither be encouraged nor permitted to awaken too much at the individual level. There are three principal fallouts from this two-part situation. The two-part situation being individual power versus societal power. One, although elements and components of individual and societal power obviously interact and influence each other, any specific distinctions between them tend to be foggy at best. Two, power is usually seen and thought of as either individual power or societal power. Individual or societal power. These two options being seen as opposing, contradictory, or at best inconvenient to each other. Three, on average, societal power is more prevailing than individual power. And so individual power is usually seen as unimportant or worthless unless it functionally integrates with societal power patterns or achieves some kind of visibility, place, esteem, or impact within the societal power setups. The Dichotomy of Important and Unimportant Power The term dichotomy, Ingo begins, is defined as a division or the process of dividing into two mutually exclusive or contradictory groups or categories, the individual or societal power. If human power per se is divided into two general categories, societal power and individual power, they'll naturally be seen as contradictory, and a power dichotomy will quickly form. And I think we can all grok this pretty quick. An individual trying to individually empower themselves will come up against a societal power structure, looking to empower the structure, often by directly or indirectly depowering the individual. There are a number of obvious and subtle reasons for this, Ingo says one of them, is that the management of societal power systems require the control and containment of the individual power within them. Yeah. A close examination of even benevolent societal power systems shows that power potentials of individuals must be shaped or programmed so as to fit within the societal contours. And this means that individual power, which is internal, and this is important, this means that individual power, which is internal and indwelling within the individual usually cannot activate and unfold of and as itself. The activation and unfolding, if any, is shaped and limited by societal forces external to the individual. Societal forces, not natural forces, societal forces. The existence of the conflict between individual and societal power is amply recorded in history. We've got plenty of stories all about it. Nikola Tesla, Joan of Arc, go way back when to the Gnostics. Ingo continues, What is not pointed up is that the conflict itself arises largely because human power is seen only within the scope of these two viewpoints, which is a form of dichotomy, right? Power is typically seen as an either-or kind of thing, either as individual or as societal. 
These ongoing conflicts within dichotomies remain in place until it's realized that the dichotomy itself is nothing more than two rather artificial parts of one larger thing that's made into these two parts. In the case of the power dichotomy, the larger thing consists of human power, per se, and from which both individual and societal power download. And so, taking one step beyond that, it is pretty easy to surmise that if human power, per se, as in de facto, as in human power as a baseline, as a foundational aspect of humanness, if human power, per se, did not exist, then neither would the power dichotomy that has been formed within it, the either-or societal versus individual. So, a more fundamental way to think about power is not via the two-part dichotomy, but as a three-part triad. Human power is, and societies are made up of individuals, and individual power is, because human power is, we are a power species. The existence of per se human powers. The term per se is defined as by, of, or in itself, or oneself, or themselves. Intrinsic. Modern philosophers like intrinsic more, Ingo says, which is more glamorous. Intrinsic is a perfectly good term and is defined as inner, inwardly, belonging to the essential nature of, a constitution of a thing. Ingo says, as to discovering the existence of the intrinsic third thing which enables individual and societal power to download and come into conflictive existence, one is ultimately obliged to note two factors. One, that if human powers did not exist per se, intrinsically or outwardly, then two, it stands to reason that neither individual nor collective societal power could come into existence in any format at all. Power is a prerequisite for everything else. Ingo states that if power per se is not first to be found within our species, then it will also not be found in the individual or within any societal power mishmashes. Therefore, the idea of our species and its intrinsic power nature is worth quite a bit more than a mere bit of biological nomenclature. It is essential. It is intrinsic. Item for field research. Interview at least five zero people with regard to what they think about power, empowerment, and depowerment. Process clue. For best results, you must first endeavor to get them to respect you. Don't be an a-hole. Hey, what do you think about power, guy? But it would be interesting. And just, you know, slip it into daily conversation. See what people think. In the next chapter, Ingo does make a point, and I'll bring it up here, that uh, discussing this issue with people who would readily be considered of the zero people class, which is, again, most of us, don't really take much of an issue. They're ready to say, yeah, I can see that society is kind of tilted, kind of severely. But anybody who is on a second tier or above of this pyramid structure is going, well, look, actually, no, I think we got some good things. I know it's not perfect, but, you know, things we, we can make, it's all right. It's, we just got to keep going. We just got to keep going. Don't, don't let the great be the enemy of the good. They seem to be a little bit more invested in the system in which they are taking part of that is actively tilting against them and quite a bit of others. And in briefly discussing this on Wednesday Ultra, uh, I brought up, I asked, you know, do, are human beings an intrinsically powerful species or does our species uh, naturally produce people without power? 
Right, that's a nice way to just start. Do you, do you think that human beings actually naturally pump out power? Are we a power species to begin with? Or is power sought and acquired externally? And so are some people just naturally depowered? That's a, that's a way to do it. That's a way to start that convo. Good luck going to parties. And next one I go, I'll, I'll give it a shot. We'll see how many people quickly flee in the other direction. I'll report back. Okay, I'm going to go take a quick break, see how many friends I have left. And then <laughs> we'll be back for Chapter 13. Chapter 13. Indigenous Depowerment and Personal Empowerment. The chapter begins... If one attempts to discuss depowerment with zero people, as we discussed at the very end of Chapter 12, it can be found that they, in one way or another, understand, comprehend, or grok its nature quite well. Ah, uh, yeah, this is the, okay, this is what I mentioned just a little while ago. Other types of people who consider themselves above the zero people class probably understand the implications of depowerment, but they are likely to shy away from discussing it because it is unfair, unethical, and indicative of practices characterized by cultivated deception. So any opening up of depowerment discussions signifies something of a dreaded horror within most societal power management systems. Indeed, if there is not a word for something, then it can't really even be discussed, can it? <coughs> depowerment, <coughs> excuse me. The concept of depowerment becomes very interesting when it is realized that if one really knows something about it, one will probably also know something about empowerment and re-empowerment. And here we go, now we're talking about the images that I was talking about earlier, the importance of the hidden map of applied depowerment. The importance of the hidden map of applied depowerment is that such map in reverse is also the hidden map of applied empowerment. By contemplating the ramifications of depowerment, you might come to realize that the applied processes of depowerment more constitute the enemy than does power itself. In other words, bad dudes and dudettes are using the processes of depowerment rather than flexing power itself. And walking down this road, you can grok quite nicely that power over others largely depends upon empowerment and depowerment. Depowerment is the enemy of empowerment. There's a very old wisdom adage advising that if one wants to outwit an enemy, one should first get to know the enemy quite well. Ingo then begins to introduce us to a way of considering egalitarianism and how this theory of complete human equality, especially with respect to social, political, economic rights and privileges, is also the social philosophy advocating the removal of inequalities among everyone. Now, maybe egalitarianism might be feasible with regard to just about everything, except, though, males, females, and most certainly power. So, you know, basic traits of being a human. Ingo then reveals one merely needs to consider the real and ongoing existence of force power and stealth power to conclude that egalitarianism was engineered perhaps on Venus, but clearly not on Earth, and certainly not from a serious consideration of our power species. Now back to the map 
In this sense, the hidden map of applied depowerment can also be seen as something of a meaningful importance. If more of the powerless and depowered had an open and free access to such a map, the power might become more egalitarian regarding empowerment. But here again is a bad dream of social power managers working on behalf of the powerful few. If egalitarianism was actually going to be pursued in any meaningful way, we'd have access to understanding not only methods of empowerment, but depowerment. It would be taught to us. And the mere fact that it is not taught to us is not very egalitarian, is it? So when the elites talk about, you will own nothing and be happy, and we'll all be equal in our owning of nothing, there might be some kind of sprinkle topping on that shit sandwich they call egalitarianism. It's not. Expanding the knowledge scope of depower. And I'll, I'll go through this uh, uh, quickly, but Ingo makes a point of using the prefix D in front of power to understand depowerment and depowering versus empowering. Uh, and it's, a, it's interesting concepts to consider. Putting a D in front of power, a particular subtle concept becomes available regarding the ways in one might think of power uh, and those who don't have any or much of it. D means from, down, or away, or doing the opposite of in some negative form. It implies detracting and repelling, as contrasted by attracting, pushing something away instead of pulling something toward you. Do the opposite of implies volitional activity. Causing others to do the opposite of power and empowerment is one form of this volitional activity. And there's a distinction here between depriving someone of power and depowering them. Depriving one of power would mean simply taking something away, but to depower is like a uh, phase change. Like a change of state, Ingo says, a change of condition down from some kind of original or innate power format. And then to empower, you know, is a state change up. Ingo says the prefixes M and N are utilized to mean to cause to be, to cause to have, to come to be, to come to have, and to provide with. So depowerment is a slowing down or devitalizing of someone's median state, and empowerment would consist of turning up power volumes, speeding up or revitalizing someone's median state of natural power potential to a higher state of functioning. All good things, all good things. We're looking for empowerment, and we're watching out for depowerment. Competition as indigenous within our power species. The term indigenous, Ingo says, is taken in English from the Latin di gignere, which means to beget. In English, however, the definition is rendered as produced, growing, or living naturally in particular region or environment. A synonym is native. Although not conventionally done, it is entirely proper to consider that power is an environment that one can step in and out of, be accepted into, pushed outside of, or conquered or killed within. Again, the map, the terrain of power and depowerment. Gotta make these maps. One of the chief characteristics indigenous to this environment is competition. And usually not of the amusing sort, governed by knowledge of the rules and by fair play, by playing by the book. Our species is exceedingly competitive. And not only with, our, with each other, with ourselves. You know, when you really turn that force within, instead of its 
much more, I would argue, destructive, comparative, exterior exercising, when you try to better yourself each day, I think that's really uh, generative and a force that is incredibly unique within humanity. That competition, if looked at as a tool, can be used in an incredibly positive way when you are in competition with your yesterday's self. Ingo says, and so a rather generalized historical solution when it comes to competition has been developed, one which is quite dependable. Competitors, and this is directing that competitive force outward, competitors can of course be dealt with via force power. But the best way of dealing with ostensible competitors is to prevent them via stealth power from becoming competitors in the first place. And we've touched on that before. Ingo is making the point here that this kind of behavior is not alien to our human species, which is a power species. This is a part of being a power species. Competition, you could argue, helps strengthen the expression of power. And that natural competition, again, can be used internally as a positive generative force, generating better versions of one's self and one's production in the world each day, from you know, grateful attitudes to amazing products, or it can be directed outside to compete against others, making it a weapon to prevent others from even participating in competition to begin with. And you could argue, you know, on, in some aspects, preventing people from competing with themselves to become better versions of themselves. Don't think about that. Chill, relax, eat that junk food. Mmm, I love junk food. Ingo goes on, this warding off prophylactic solution is widespread throughout our species, so much so that it is indigenous. If we can speak of indigenous power within our species, then we got to speak of indigenous depowerment and indigenous competitiveness. There are dark sides to every shiny coin. However, the depowered are still carriers of power. Hypothetically speaking, Ingo says, if, via depowerment measures, one's power volume has been turned down too low, you'll be unable to sense the power, you can't hear the power, you can't dance to the power, or at least not very well. If the power energy level has been turned down or reduced in important ways, you might not even recognize or be able to tap into some of those power energy reserves. As a collective, this would constitute those who feel they are powerless. Even if they can still sense the powers within them, they can't hear them, they can't feel with them, they can't dance to the music. They cannot know that they, as living, animated, and animating humans, are still carriers of power. And that might be the baseline that is being ultimately suppressed, is that no matter what, even at our weakest, most broken-down, anti-dancifying states, we are still carriers of power. The masses of humans, Ingo says, all of which are carriers of power, cannot be terminated or completely done away with. It would ruin the system that is set up. So, these people must be rendered into a stepped-down power condition. If this stepping down is successful, then there will be plenty of the depowered to have control and authority over. But at the very base of it, even at our weakest, we are still carriers of power. Items to deduce. 
discover at least three important species innate powers which must be depowered in order to reduce the populations of power competitors. Directed attention, I think, is one. Look at all of the things asking for our attention, and asking is putting it nicely. This world has been designed to take our attention without us attending to what we'd like to send our attention to in the first place. Sparkly lights, hot bodies, instant gratification, agency over attention, I think is one of them. Effective self-competition is another, and perhaps the ability of strengthening and heightening awareness just as a general innate ability already within us. We have the ability to expand and extend awareness. We're not limited by anything but our own preconceived, artificial, societally placed limitation. So yeah, directed attention, constructive self-competition, awareness, expanding, and strengthening. Those are my three. I bet there's a whole bunch more. <laughs> well, with these conversations, though, we are actively empowering ourselves. You know, we're here. We're working on it. We're moving it. We're grooving with it. We are a power species and carriers of power. And I think that is a beautiful baseline to walk on from. Walk on, everybody. Walk on in your power. And thanks for hanging. More power to you.